Both we come to the time in our worship service where we turn to the Word of God, and I invite you, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. And you may have noticed, and I've had a couple folks already jokingly ask me this morning if I'm going to do part two next week, and uh, the answer to that is no. Um, I said, this is job security. Hopefully it'll be, you'll want to come back some other time in the future when Brian is gone and I'll preach. We'll do the second part of this, this message. But uh, for this morning, we want to look at Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 9, if, if we can. And as many of you know, um, whether it be in the television, uh, the music industry, uh, theater, uh, even for the nightly news, it is pretty tough to follow somebody who has become an icon uh, in that one of those businesses or one of those trades. For example, after Dan Rather left and, and then uh, Peter Jennings uh, left the nightly news and also Tom Brokaw with that beautiful voice of his, whether you like his politics or not, you have to admit the man had just an incredible voice. They're pretty tough acts to follow. It is pretty hard to st- step into their role and to be accepted by the general audience. And we saw this some years ago when Johnny Carson was deciding to retire and it was pretty obvious that he probably was going to pick Jay Leno because he had Jay Leno on so many times filling in for him when he was on vacation. Uh, then a man by the name of David Letterman came along. And uh, there, you, some of you, if you follow any of those things for the last few years, the battle that went back and forth. But it's still, when someone says The Tonight Show, most folks, unless you're under 30 probably, would think of Johnny Carson because he's the one who really made the, the show in the evening what it, what it was uh, and, and what it would become. That's a tough act to follow. Uh, That is true in the business world. If someone has been a very successful entrepreneur and he or she retires, the next person who comes in really has big shoes to fill. And sometimes they do exceedingly well. They even take the company beyond where their predecessor had. But in many cases, they fail, partly because they're not that personality. They're not that individual. Whether you know it or not, sometimes that's true in churches as well. Uh, There have been many churches over the years where they've had a pastor for 20, 30, 40, sometimes 50 years. And then the person who comes after them has a very difficult time because of the transition from dear old brother so-and-so to the new pastor or the the new elder who would be the teaching elder of the church. Um, Some succeed very well at it. Years ago, some of you may be aware of this, uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones succeeded um, a man by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. The, the tabernacle in, in England. And he did so successfully, I might add, partly because uh, G. Campbell Morgan knew that God was calling him to a broader ministry. So for a period of about five years, they had called Martin Lloyd-Jones to be his, his assistant and eventual successor, and he slowly groomed him and then turned over the pulpit to him, and he had a very successful ministry upwards of 30 years before the Lord called him home as well. But it doesn't always happen that way, partly because folks like what they've been used to for a long period of time. We find that in the Bible as well. Think with me for a moment about David. Uh, One exception being his son Solomon, who came after him, who seemed to even expand the kingdom. And as you would see in Western civilization, they would say that was really Israel's glorious or golden era under Solomon's reign. And yet, who do you remember after Solomon? Who do you really remember? We can throw a few names out, you know, perhaps Josiah, so Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah. But really, immediately after Solomon, who stands out 
as somebody really brilliant who was able to take the nation of Israel, keep it together in worship of Yahweh. It's very, very difficult. In our text this morning, we see the baton being passed from Moses to a young man, or in this case, later life, a seasoned citizen, some might suggest, by the name of Joshua. The historical context of this book is coming on the heels of the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy. Many of you know this story. The people had wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because at Kadesh Barnea, they had disobeyed the Lord, and rather than going up and conquering the land at that time, they rebelled. And so as a punishment, the Lord said, this generation will wander until they die off, but they will not go in the land except for Joshua and Caleb, who have obeyed me. And so as the Lord led them out of the wilderness to the north, where they entered the plain of Moab, just opposite of the Dead Sea, in what is today the Jordan River Valley, looking across at Jericho, God renews the covenant with Israel, and all they have to do is cross the Jordan, defeat the people, take the city of Jericho, and take possession of the land. And wherever their foot would trod, the Lord promised to give them the land. And so with this time at hand, Moses blesses the people at the end of Deuteronomy, and the Lord takes him up to Mount Nebo, shows him the promised land from Gilead to the south to Dan to the north, and he dies, and the Lord buries him. And so with Moses' death, the nation of Israel faces a fairly significant dilemma. Moses was the only human leader that they had ever known, and so now he's gone. This man who they heard stories of great power, uh, working out the mighty deeds of God, suddenly now he's gone. Who will lead us into the promised land? Who will take us into battle against the Canaanites? How will we conquer Jer- Jericho and the other fortified cities? Now add to this, this land that they were going in to possess is between three of the superpowers of the day. Egypt to the south, the Hittites to the north, and a growing influence of Babylon to the east. They were getting a new leader, but this leader was also part of the older generation. In fact, as we said earlier, he is one of the original 12 who went out to spy the land in the first place. As many of you know, Joshua's original name was Hoshea. In Numbers 13, 16, it tells us that Moses changed his name to Joshua, which simply says, the Lord saves. Next to 17, Israel's at war with the Amalekites, and this is where uh, when Moses lift up his hands, they would prevail, and when his arm would fall down, the Malachites would prevail. But Joshua is the one who's leading the army. And so they prop up Moses' arms so that it went well with him in battle. And we know from this, and also from the book of Joshua, that he was a skilled fighter. In fact, many military men and women over the years have looked at his strategy, and often when this book is preached, it is preached based on his leadership abilities more so than the focus we're going to bring to it this morning. We know that he is with Moses at Mount Sinai, and that he was by his side during the golden calf situation. He was with Moses at the tent of meeting. Numbers eleven twenty eight. he urges Moses to stop Eldad and Medad from prophesying, and Moses recognizes that Joshua was, was jealous for Moses' glory, and yet he said, all, oh, that all the people of Israel would prophesy. So he appreciated Joshua's zeal, even though it might have been misplaced. And then, as you know, he was one of the 12 spies who, when he came back and gave a good report and said, yes, they're giants, but they are our bread, and God will deliver them into our hands. So this is the man 
who the Lord commissioned all the way back in Numbers 27 to take over for Moses. Deuteronomy 34.9 says, And Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now just so you know, these words were written after Moses' death. Joshua finished the book of Deuteronomy. And so this is looking back and saying what the people had done. So this isn't what we're going to come to in Joshua 1, where this hasn't occurred yet. The people haven't had to follow him. They haven't had to obey him yet, but they're going to be pressed into service to do it. And so in this book that bears his name, we'll see this close connection between this and the book of Moses. Your outline for you in your bulletin is very simple. Uh, God's commissioning of Joshua, his commitment, and then also his charge to Joshua. We're only going to look at the first two this morning. The third one, Lord willing, sometime in the future will we'll complete. But this morning we want to focus our attention on the commissioning of Joshua and then the Lord's commitment to him. So look with me here in Joshua chapter 1 and follow along as I read for us the first nine verses. And it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. This is sort of like a Dickinson's uh, Christmas carol, right? Marley was dead. And it, pretty obvious if you get through in the, right? And so uh, he's telling him the obvious, and it's for our purpose. He's emphasizing, I want you to understand Moses is dead. He's not coming back. Okay, Joshua, do, do you understand that? He's dead. So, go over the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will trot upon, I have given to you, as I said to Moses. From the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. All the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, <clears throat> that you may observe... <clears throat> pardon me to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, for you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Very simple commissioning here in the first two verses. The Lord simply says to him, Moses, my servant, is dead. And in this, he identifies Joshua. He reminds him he's Moses' assistant. He's Moses' heir to lead the children of Israel. And his commission is very simple. Go over the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land I am giving the people of Israel. Now, that sounds pretty easy at first, and many of you have been to Israel, and so you know the Jordan 
in most places, or in many places, really doesn't look that treacherous. But this, as we'll find out later in the story, not today, but in the future, is at flood stage. And it can be a very treacherous river at that time. And so he's going to command them to cross a flooded river in order to go con- conquer the land. And not just Joshua, but the people. So you can imagine taking hundreds of thousands of people to the brink of a river that's at flood stage and tell them, follow me, we're going to cross. Now think for a moment, those of you who've watched the Gallatin at flood stage, right? This is a table rock, one of the, the areas down there. You go down and you look at that water, <clears throat> and God says, cross it. Cross it. I, I, want, I want you to take all these people across, because when you go across all that land where you walk, it's going to be yours. But you have to cross the river to do it. And we notice also here that God is sovereignly giving them this land. Well, the land belongs to the Lord not to the tribes that are living there. Why, why do I mention that? Some might want to say, those poor Canaanites, they were there first. The Jews had no right to throw them out of a land. Which, by the way, is a view held by many skeptics, critical and liberal scholars, and also not too few people in the Middle East today. The Jews just displaced these people. They didn't belong there in the first place. May I remind you of Psalm 24, verse 1, which says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Synonymous parallelism, the author, David, is telling us everything belongs to the Lord. And just in case you missed it, the world and those who dwell here are his. So there's three reasons why the Jews can take the land. First, Psalm 24, God gave it to them because he owns it. Beloved, if God wants to take a piece of real estate and give it to a particular people, he can do it. Why? He owns it. I I know I'm I'm talking this morning to many business owners, realtors, homeowners. Do you realize you don't own it? The bank doesn't own it. God owns it. I know there's pieces of paper. I know you signed off. I know you have a bill of sale. But ultimately, it all belongs to him. And so should it surprise us, then he says, I will give you the land. That's his to begin with. Secondly, almost 600 years before this, God had promised the land to Abram. And the reason he promised him, it was his comment to Abraham that he was giving the people of Canaan an additional 400 years to repent. He said, I'm going to send your people away, and they're going to sojourn in Egypt for roughly 400 years, 430 years, until the time of the Canaanites is fulfilled. Then I will bring them out to this land with my strong arm. So for over 400 years, God was giving the tribe, the people there, an opportunity to repent and turn to God. And they didn't. And God uses Israel as a judging tool on their land. He brings them in to take it over, to build a nation that would call on the one true God and would be a light to the world. So that others, if they wanted to know how to worship God, how to come be rightly related to God, could come to them and see in that nation what it meant to be rightly related to the Lord God of the universe. 
and not to one of the false gods. And so that is the commission that he gives him. You stand here today, arise, cross the river, and wherever you go, I will give you this land. And you can imagine Joshua thinking, you know, Lord, I've watched for 40 years these people who followed Moses. <clears throat> I'm not exactly Moses, you know. And so uh, they gave him a pretty hard time. Remember, 10 times they complained against the Lord. 10 times <clears throat> it was an issue of we don't have food. We don't have water. We don't have this. We don't have that. Oh, oh. Right? You want to lead that group of people? You want to lead that company? Everybody's a whiner and a complainer. And at flood stage, no less. Fortified cities, no less. That's the challenge before this man. But God makes a commitment to him in verses 3 through 5. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness in this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites into the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. His commitment, I, I have given you. Notice he went from I am giving to you, I have given Sovereignly, I've already, I've already accomplished this. I've already set this parameter around the whole situation to wherever your, your feet would trot. And, and beloved, notice for, except, for a second the parameters, the map he gives us. The land of the Hittites. What's that? That's most of modern-day Turkey. Okay? If you have, you have a good study Bible, you have maps in the back, flip back there where it shows you the... Uh, uh, the mission travels of Paul, where you can see Asia Minor, Greece, you know, Israel, and you can see the Euphrates River. You clip, flip back there for a second, and you look at that, and you say, wow, most, almost all of Turkey? Yeah. Go to the Euphrates River, follow the Euphrates River. Where does that come out at? Well, if I remember my geography, I think Baghdad, right? Okay. People today are worried about a nation about the size of the state of New Jersey? If you read the property boundary, and I know i got realtors here. I won't ask you to raise your hand. But i got realtors here this morning because I've seen a number of faces. How big an area is that? Is that the size of the state of New Jersey? I don't think so. All this I have given to you. There's one thing you got to do. You have to walk through the land and take it, which unfortunately they didn't do. But he says, I've given this to you. And so realistically speaking, if you want to talk about Israel's boundaries, if you really want to throw that on the table with Oslo Accords or any of those other things, pre-67 boundaries, I, I got news for the world. From the Euphrates to the Mediterranean, from Turkey down to the Sinai, it's theirs. It's theirs, according to Joshua 1. And according to what he said to Moses, the Lord gave them the land. Pretty interesting. We fight over a piece of real estate the size of the state of New Jersey, when in, in actuality they would have a larger chunk of the entire Middle East. Someday they might. We'll see. 
for correct. I have given you. No one, verse 5a, no one, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. is that amazing? God says no one will be able to stand before you. Why? Because I will be with you. That's why. No one. Not the Hittite Empire, not Pharaoh in Egypt, not the kings of Babylon, not this Syrian, not anybody would be able to stand against Israel, provided they walked with the Lord. He would be with them, with Joshua. What a commitment. I am with you. No one can stand before you. Well, that is why you and God, the army of one, can defeat anything. This is the God who promised Joshua, I will be with you as I was with Moses. Now, here's where we want to park our time this morning. How was it that God was with Moses? See, I think this is really important because as Joshua reflects on what God was or how God was with Moses, it's what strengthened him in the inner man. As he could look back and realize what God had done in the life of Moses, he was able to embrace the promises, the commitment that God had given him. And what we see is that God was with Moses in the bitterness of failure. Go back with me to Exodus Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. And you know this story. If you've gone through Sunday school at all, or even just casually read through the Bible, you you know the story of of Moses, his birth. Uh, It goes really from his birth, three months, boom, he appears on the scene, he's 40 years old. Just kind of a 40-year gap there, right? And we get bits and pieces in the New Testament. But in Exodus chapter 11, the children of Israel have been in bondage for almost 400 years. And it says, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown that he went out to his brethren and looked at their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two Hebrew men were fighting. And he said to him, to the one who did the wrong, why are you striking your companion? Then he said, who makes you a prince and a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? So Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and dwelt in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. We'll keep a finger there, and let's go back to the New Testament. And this is what Stephen says over in Acts chapter 7. Acts 7 and as he recites the history, as he lays out the argument that Jesus is the prophet to come, the Son of God, he gives them an Old Testament lesson, which they were aware of, but he reminds them of it. And he points to Moses. In verse 20 of Acts 7, he says this, And this time, at this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in the father's house for three, his father's house for three months. But when he was set out... Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up in her own house. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deed. But when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brother and the children of Israel. 
And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a sojourner in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And over in the book of Hebrews, a little further to the right, Hebrews chapter 11. We pick up in verse 24. And this is what Luke, um, through the words of Paul, records for us. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, that is when he was 40, Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with his people, the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches than the treasure in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned. Well, several things. One, Moses was grown by 40. He was grown by 40. Unfortunately, it seems a lot of folks aren't even grown up at 40. But Moses was fully grown. That's the idea to tell us that he was mature, understanding, capable if you will. And he goes out and he sees his brethren. He sees one of his brethren being mistreated. And so he decides, if you will, to redeem him, to help him. And in that process, he kills the Egyptian. And beloved, may I remind you, you and I need to stand up for injustice, but we don't always have to strike back. Moses looked this way and that, and he killed the man. And we're told further by Stephen that he assumed that his brethren would understand that he had come to deliver them. There seems to be something in these accounts when we put piece them together. One is that we know at his birth that there was something about him. Some translations say he was a beautiful child. Actually, the Hebrew suggests that no, the hand of the Lord was on him and his parents knew it. His mother understood there's something about this child that is different. The Lord wants to do with him. And so he's given over to Pharaoh's daughter to raise. And we're told by Stephen, and also in Hebrews, he was learned in all the ways of Egypt. He was an eloquent man, which will come to play in just a few moments. And yet, having that at his fingertips to use, he decided to forsake it, not being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter but to align himself with his people, Israel. So we sometimes we watch the Ten Commandments with Yul Brenner, and, um, oh, the actor slips my mind. Sorry, I had a senior moment there. Ben-Hur, who played Ben-Hur? Charlton Heston, thank you. Former NRA president who's since gotten beer the Lord. Charlton Heston, we, see, we think that's exactly how it happened, that he suddenly just discovered that he was a Hebrew. No, there's a pretty good indication that he knew all along that he was adopted, that he was actually a Jew, one of the Hebrew people. And it would seem from the text that he knew God wanted to use him in some way. 
How? And so when he sees an injustice, he strikes out. And yet he fails within his own power. He supposed they would know he was the deliverer. He supposed he could deliver them. We see an example of that in Luke 24, where two disciples on the road to Emmaus supposed that Jesus was the Messiah. In their supposition, they were wrong, and it affected their outlook. Beloved, you and I can't build our lives on supposition. Scientists, researchers can, but even they research and try to prove it. What it appears to be is Moses didn't seek God in this process, and so he fails. So what does he do? He ran away to Midian and was there for 40 years, as Stephen tells us in Acts 7.30. He was on the backside of the desert. Here, this somebody who had everything is a nobody with nothing. But he wasn't alone. He wasn't alone. God was with him as he had been with the children of Israel. God is watching over him. God knew him. He knew each step, every act, every thought, every action. And so God was with him on the backside of the mountain, breaking his fear. We know the story from Exodus. He sees this burning bush, and he steps aside to look at it, and he draws close. And some have jokingly said, well, as he was 80, he had to get close so he could see it and hear it. And a lot of wives would say amen, probably, to that. And so he comes to see it, and a voice speaks to him and says, Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground. And the Lord appears to him. Now, we say fear. Wait a second. There seems to be a contradiction in the text, because the author of Hebrews says he didn't fear the wrath of Pharaoh. How, how are we supposed to understand this? Because Exodus seems to suggest that he feared Pharaoh. Pharaoh had found out about it, and he left. Well, it could be a reference to his throwing in his lot with his people. In other words, leaving the protection of the palace uh, to be a Hebrew, to take up their, uh, their cause, if you will, which Hebrews 11.26 seems to suggest. It could be, some say, a reference to the Exodus where he left the safety and the shelter of Egypt, went out across the desert, something he had been across and knew it was very difficult, and yet ten plagues? Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure that he'd be as afraid of the desert after seeing what God could do. But others said it's not that he was afraid of Pharaoh's anger in itself, but the lack of the folks, his own people, embracing him as their deliverer and accepting him. He had risked so much delivering the one Hebrew from his taskmaster. And yet the next day when he tried to be a peacemaker, it was, are you going to kill me too? And it seems to suggest, both from Acts and Hebrews, that the people did not recognize this is the man God had chosen. Now, again, none of these are perfect answers, but I I like the last one because it seems to fit the Lord's response in Exodus 3. You know the Lord speaks to him out of the bush. And uh, I I can imagine him thinking, okay, I I hear you, but the folks didn't like me the last time. I left the palace. I left all the, the rank and privilege of being Pharaoh's son to go out to my people and identify with them. And when I take a step to do something for them, I get shot down. And as a result, I had to flee. And so we see this exchange back in Exodus chapter 3. In verse 11, after the Lord has told him, I have seen, 
I surely have seen emphatically the oppression of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sorrows. I have come down to bring them up to that land. I want you to go. And Moses says this in verse 11. But who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Lord, if you haven't noticed, I've been, I've been a sheep herder for the last 40 years. Okay, I'm, I'm 80. I'm going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. I don't think so. How's this going to work? Then he, then he says this. After he says in verse 12, I will be with you, Moses says in verse 13, well, who are you? When I go there, the people are going to say, well, who sent you? Well, what am I supposed to say? No offense, but you really haven't been around for 400 years. Okay, there's no synagogue. There's no temple. We, we haven't heard a, a word from the Lord in 400 years. Notice a parallel between that and Malachi in the time of Christ's coming? 400 years of silence. He says, who am I to tell them? Sent me. And he gives them that, that great, I will be who I will be. Tell them, I am, has sent you. Well, that doesn't solidify it for him. So over in chapter 4, after God has revealed himself to Moses, Moses answers and says in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Exodus, but suppose, hypothetically, what if they will not believe me or listen to my voice? Suppose they say, the Lord has not appeared to you. And so what does the Lord do? He says, what's in your hand? Well, it's a staff. I mean, i got to have that when I'm working sheep. I just throw it down. So he throws it down. Comes a snake. He says, pick it up. Picks it up. Whoa. Whoa. Uh, work signs among you. When's the last time you had a walking stick? You threw it down and become a snake. Okay. This has got to kind of blow his mind a little bit. God's working with him here. And so in verse 10, he says this. That, didn't, that trick didn't work. So he says, oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Neither before now, since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. What does Stephen tell us? He was well-educated and eloquent. What, what happened? Is, is he lying? Well, it, it could be. It could be. Failure had affected him. Well, isn't it true that no one falls harder than the person who has the farthest to fall? Is it possible failure took it out of him. He, he, he looked failure in the face and had 40 years to think about it. Man, I failed. And 40 years in the desert probably took it out of him. The environment he was in affected him. 40 years of moo, bah, hee-haw. You're around sheep, goats, donkeys, camels for 40 years. You don't think that's going to have an effect on you? I think it would have. On most of us. But in Exodus 4.11, the Lord puts it to him when he says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seen, or the blind? Have not I, Yahweh? Who is sovereign, Moses, over these things? Who gives speech? Who takes it away? Who gives sight? Who allows it not to occur? Me. So I will be with you. I will give you my words. 
Beloved, I don't know if you've ever meditated on that verse, but I encourage you sometime in your life to do so. Some of you have gone through great medical difficulty, maybe great hardship, maybe you have a child or a loved one, or maybe you yourself have some form of physical struggle or disability of some kind. I would encourage you and I to meditate on this verse. Nothing happens that is not within the sovereign will of God. And that's what he's saying to Moses. Don't, don't tell me you can't speak. Don't, don't tell me you're a stutterer. Don't tell me that you have brain lapses because I'm, I'm the one who allows you to think in the first place. I'm the one who allows you to speak. I'm the one who allows you to see. I'm the one who allows you to hear. I'm the one who allows you to take all that data, all that sensory data in, and then to be able to use it. I'm the one who does this for you. Love, do you know when I was in, in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of meeting a young man whose name is Yuri. He will be 39 in August, and Yuri, is, is, his cerebral palsy is so bad that his body is entirely crippled up. In fact, my little three-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, do you, you know I'm a grandfather, um, beautiful little granddaughter is bigger than he is. <clears throat> and he has great difficulty in speaking, but he loves the Lord. And when you walk into his home, he just lost his mother in January. His father died some years ago. His other brother had died. He's by himself, except for the neighbor lady who's very good friend, had been very good friends with his mom. She comes over, <clears throat> feeds him, washes him, clothes him, takes him outside in nice weather. She has a thing where he can set up his Bible, and so he'll turn pages for him so he can read the Bible. Yes, he knows how to read. And I had the privilege of praying with him and, and over him. And uh, the joy of the Lord exudes from this young man. You know, unless the Lord heals him this side of the glory, he'll never walk. He'll never talk like you and I. He'll, he'll never do the things that most of us just take for granted on a daily basis. He will never do those, but he loves the Lord. And Kuhn, Ira's husband, Kuhn Collier, as we were leaving, said, Pastor Dave, he said, think about this for a moment. There are people who have jobs there are people who have homes. There are people who have a father and a mother or a spouse or children or parents. People who have good jobs, who can sing and who can run, and yet they commit suicide because they think life isn't worth living. Or they give themselves over to drugs because life's not worth living. But look at this young man. He exudes the joy of the Lord. And so here's Moses saying, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since. I'm slow of speech, slow of tongue. God says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm the sovereign creator. I can use you. I can speak through you. Open your mouth, my words will come out. Don't worry about it. I can do it. And so Moses, not to be put off, verse 13 Oh, Lord, that's literally, oh, Lord, please send by the hand of whomever you would send. It says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And so he gives him a helper, his brother Aaron. And I will be to you as though I was speaking to Aaron himself. I will speak to you, you speak to Aaron, and Aaron will speak to Pharaoh 
So the Lord sends him out, and Moses finally, realizing, running out of excuses, says, I'll go. And as he goes, who does he meet? He meets his brother Aaron. You'd see that later in the chapter. And so finally, with this assurance, he goes to Egypt and appears before Pharaoh. So he was with him in his failure. He's with him in his fear. Now notice he is with him in the battle of faith. Exodus 5 through 14. And we won't look at all that, obviously. But he goes before Pharaoh and he says, The Lord God has sent me. Let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who's God? Who's the Lord that I should listen to him? I don't know if you notice, but I'm one of the big three on the scene. I don't listen to your God. I don't know your Hebrew God. If your God's so good, how come your people are slaves? Okay, we only get a sanitized version here. And so he laughs at Moses, and what does he do? He orders the Hebrews to make bricks without straw. And what happens? The people get a little excited. Chapter 5, verse 21. And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of the servants to put a a sword in the hand to kill us. Man, you you come to deliver us, to come to help us, and you made our problem worse. Over in chapter 6, verse 9, we see this from them as well. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel, but they would not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Can you imagine what he's thinking? I go up. I, I, okay, I obey God. God says, go. God says, I'll be with you. God, I'll do all this. I go up there. I speak to Pharaoh. Pharaoh laughs at me. and says, you know what? I'm going to make things harder for your people. No straw. Same amount of bricks. See you tomorrow. And everybody is angry and sorrowful, anguish of heart. Oh, what happens? Well, you know the rest of the story. He goes back. Let my people go. If you don't let them go, this is going to happen. Plague, 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 plague. Love, keep in mind, the battle wasn't Moses versus Pharaoh. The battle is God and Satan. The battle's ferocious. Power matching power. In fact, if I was Pharaoh, I'd, I'd have fired my magicians. Why? Because instead of undoing what Moses did, they just duplicated it. Moses, frogs, boom. What do they do? Boom, more frogs. Lice, more lice, right? Darkness, more darkness. Those are the wrong kind of magicians if you're going to hire them. The battle is ferocious until the angel of the Lord. The angel of death appeared when all the firstborn in Egypt were killed. Israel included, unless they put over the doorposts of their house, the blood of the Passover lamb. So the angel would pass over their door, and they would live. And, beloved, you and I know that that pass over lamb is a picture of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. And just as the blood of those lambs caused the angel to pass over their home, so physical death did not occur, so his blood and righteousness applied to your soul and mine makes it possible for the angel of death to pass over. Oh, I know we all will die someday if the Lord tarries. That's physical death. We're talking here spiritual death. Death of the soul. Eternal damnation from the presence of the Lord. That's spiritual death. The blood of the Lamb applied to a life. Doesn't matter what color skin, doesn't matter what language group, doesn't matter what sex, what nation. Applied to anyone's heart. 
that angel of death will pass over because of Jesus Christ. If you are here today but have not or are not trusting in Christ alone, if Christ has not washed your heart clean by his blood, by his death and his resurrection, I say as gently but as firmly as I can, church attendance will not save you. Baptism will not save you. Communion will not save you. Confirmation will not save you. Giving will not save you. Reading the Bible will not save you. Just being a good person and helping a little old lady or a little old man across the street will not save you. Only the blood of Christ applied to your life, only his death applied to your life will save you as it saved the children of Israel in that day. Only that will do it. And that is appropriated by faith alone, trusting in Christ and what he's done. His finished and complete work on the cross applied to the door of your soul by faith alone will assure that you can go to heaven and be with him for all eternity. Now, beloved, I know that some are sitting here this morning, and perhaps their life has been one series of failures after another. Failure, failure, failure. In class, perhaps at home, at work, Perhaps some are here in a state of fear, fear of failure, or fear because you have failed and you don't know what's next. And there are some who maybe are even at a crisis of faith because of their fear and because of their failure. So they look at their life. They look at decisions they made even as a believer. Believers still sin on occasion, do they not? Not that we want to, but we do. It's still a battle, this side of glory. And maybe you failed and you say, oh, how could God use me? I supposed, and it didn't come to pass. What will he do? Beloved, may I remind you, he was with Moses in his failure. He was with Moses in the midst of his fear. And he was with Moses in that battle of faith. As he stood before Pharaoh, toe to toe against the forces of darkness, the Lord was with him. And as he says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And I believe we can take a timeless principle from that and that the Lord will be with you and me. Oh, not wherever your feet will tread will he give you the land of Israel. That's not your promise or mine. But he does promise to be with us because he said in Hebrews, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. He said in Matthew 28, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I am with you. And as he was with Moses, beloved, I believe he will be with you and me as well. So whatever your fear, whatever your failure, whatever your crisis of faith this morning, I say to you, come to him and understand he will be with you. He is with you. The God who saw and heard and came down to deliver Israel sees, he hears, and he's come down in the person of Christ to help you and me as well. Father, we thank you for your gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a wonderful, absolutely breathtaking thought to realize that the God of the universe knows our name. He he knows my heart. He knew when I would take my first breath, and he knows when I will take my last breath. He knows my infirmities. He knows my shortcomings. He knows my failures. He knows my fear. And yet he says, I will be with you. Well, Father, give us great faith. Give us the faith. Like Brother Don years ago when he prayed, Lord, give me big feet 
Not that he wanted the land of Israel, but that he wanted wherever he went that the gospel would be preached, people would be saved. I pray you would give us big faith, not just for the salvation of those around us, but for us to see as we walk this daily life in Christ. We would see you. We would see how you are with us, how you can take us in our weakness, how you can take us in our failure, how you can take us even when we are struggling in our faith to make sense of what is going on, how in the midst of that you can still work through us and work in us and bring victory. Father, may we be like Moses and Joshua. Take you at your word today. And when we get up in the morning, to take you at your word for that day and the next and the next. We ask this for your glory, the testimony of your church, and for our good. Amen.